Welcome to CollegeCast for pharmacy practice news, views and updates brought to you by the Pharmaceutical Society of New Zealand. Join us to find out about tips and tools for immediate benefit to your practice and learn about current practice topics and innovations driving the future of pharmacy. In today's episode, we have Claire O'Reilly with us, who's going to discuss stigma and discrimination in mental health. Dr. Claire O'Reilly is a senior lecturer at the University of Sydney Pharmacy School. Claire is a pharmacist and health services researcher with experience in mental health, as well as a practicing community pharmacist and experienced mental health trainer. Claire's research focuses on the area of mental health that investigates consumers' experiences of stigma and discrimination in schizophrenia pharmacist professional pharmacy services, roles for pharmacists in screening people for depression, evaluation of mental health training and education programs, and new roles for pharmacists in mental health as part of the multidisciplinary team. Claire was previously National Vice President of the Pharmaceutical Society of Australia and was the first pharmacist to be appointed to the Medical Services Advisory Committee which provides advice to the federal government on the strength of evidence for the safety, effectiveness and cost-effectiveness of medical technologies. Claire's past achievements include being awarded the PSA Australian Young Pharmacist of the Year in 2006, and in 2009, she was awarded the International Pharmaceutical Federation Young Pharmacist Award for Professional Innovation. Now, most commonly, when we talk about stigma and discrimination, we think of that from a community perspective. But today, we're actually going to be looking at stigma and discrimination experienced by people with mental illnesses from their own health professionals. All right, Claire, thank you for being with us today. Now, you have done quite a bit of research in this area. So can you tell me what health professionals your research focuses on? Sure. Um, well, thanks for having me today to talk about this. Um, look, originally my research first started focusing, focusing originally on pharmacy students as I was teaching pharmacy students and we started to realise that um, perhaps we don't teach them enough around the broader aspects of mental health and we looked at their attitudes and how we could improve them because we, we noticed that sometimes they might have had some poor attitudes or beliefs around mental illness. Um, so I've then done more work in pharmacists out there in practice looking at their, their knowledge, their attitudes, their stigma around, around mental illness. Um, and then since then I've been interested in uh, talking to mental health consumers themselves and finding out around their experiences of stigma or discrimination when they seek help for either mental health or physical health problems and whether they experience uh, stigma or discrimination from their mental health, um, mental health, health professional or a GP or a nurse or, or things like that. So uh, kind of covered some broad health professionals across that research. Now, one of your papers, you say that stigma and discrimination in relation to mental illnesses have been described as having worse consequences than the conditions themselves. Mm. Now, that was quite a, a tough thing to read, to be honest. Yeah. Um, but recognising that the, the stigma can have worse consequences than the conditions themselves. What exactly do you mean by stigma and discrimination and what does that look like? Yeah, sure. Um, look, I think it is good to try and define what we mean by this first. So there are a few different definitions out there, but I often describe stigma as a it's like a negative attitude that's based on prejudice or misinformation about about something. So, um, and a way to break it down 
a little bit is that stigma can sometimes be thought of as a problem of knowledge. So someone might be ignorant about something because they don't have enough knowledge about it. Um, and that can lead to poor attitudes about it, which in turn leads to prejudice. Um, but also it can then lead to poor behaviour, which is where discrimination comes in. So discrimination can be described as like the behavioural manifestation of stigma. So someone might have a poor attitude about something, but it's then how they treat someone because of that attitude that I think is the important part that we look at and how that impacts on, every, on people's day-to-day -day lives who live with the illness. So in an article that I read recently in mm -hmm. New Zealand Doctor, this article was titled, Discrimination Against Fat People is so endemic that most of us don't realise it's happening. Mm. Now, in this article, it states that there are more subtle reminders of a perceived devalued status. And in this case, that is based around people being overweight. Mm -hmm. And that this is called microaggression. Mm. And they gave some examples of microaggression, such as um, these overweight people hearing other people making fun of them, uh, people watching them when they're eating at a restaurant, or wondering if they will be taken seriously when they go to a doctor with a sprained ankle, mm. or whether they'll just be told to go away and lose some weight. Mm. Now, recognising that it's around people that are overweight, would you say that microaggression is also experienced by people with severe mental illness? Yeah, look, I think that's an interesting, interesting idea. And I haven't heard that term before, microaggression, but I think in some ways I can see some similarities, but also some differences. So I think if we think of that definition of stigma and discrimination, you know, that can happen for any variety of reasons. It could be because of racial background, you know, it could be because of different illnesses, whether you have HIV or, or obesity or, you know, all of these different things can have their own um, stigma or discrimination. But I think some of those elements elements um, around that microaggression idea can be relevant to, men to mental illness in that sometimes it could be, sometimes these little things can be quite ingrained and, you know, they might dismiss, for example, some things that have come up in our research is that someone might go to see a doctor um, and they might you know, notice on their history that they have a, a mental illness or that they take a medication for a mental illness. And almost, you know, subconsciously that physician might dismiss those problems as being related to their mental illness rather than a, a separate physical complaint, kind of related mm. to that idea you mentioned with the sprained ankle on someone mm. being overweight. And so sometimes that happens in the, and without even, uh, you know, the, the physician might not even realise they're doing it. Sometimes there's a, an idea called diagnostic overshadowing. So this idea that um, subconsciously you treat that person or the physician or, or the health professional is treating that person with a mental illness differently without even realising. And it is a big problem when it comes to um, physical health care with people with a mental illness because we know that even in some Australian data in the last five years we've seen that people with a ment mental illness can die 15 to 20 years younger than the rest of the population. Wow. So more severe and persistent so when we look at things like schizophrenia or things like that and that's actually separate to suicide so that's mm. all things that should be preventable um, due to cardiovascular issues and other preventable physical health uh, reasons, people die that much younger. So um, there is a, and that's complex. It's not just because of that, that reason. Mm. There are a lot of things going on there, but some of those type of things can, um, might be related to that kind of idea that you term microaggression. So those subtle little things. Another example might be um, 
you know, if someone has a more severe or persistent mental illness, they might go along to a health professional with a case manager to support them. And commonly we hear reports from, um, from people that uh, health professionals automatically talk to the case manager about the, this person's health concerns and ignore them as though they're not, you know, I've had one, one um, you know, person describe that they felt that they were, you know, not intelligent enough to talk about their own illness or their own health concerns because all the questions are directed uh, to the to the case manager or the care or the family member. So that kind of dismissing their Mm. dismissing their point of view or, or things like that can be some of those subtle things that that can happen mm. but also I think on the other end of the spectrum um, what I think we tend to find in, in severe and persistent mental illness is that uh, sometimes the stigma and discrimination almost goes unnoticed by that individual so if they've had for example they've been living with a quite ongoing uh, and persistent schizophrenia for many years for example they might have and this is kind of what we hypothesize based on some of our recent research is that maybe they're actually um, they're either get used to the stigma or discrimination over time so it just becomes part of day-to-day -day life yeah. and they don't even pick it up which is sad because that's you know mm -hmm. becomes their their norm um, or is it sometimes also we think that maybe also over time the, the cognitive impacts of their illness might mean that they're also not as able to pick up on some of those things. Or another thing that we've noticed as well is if, if someone has a proactive um, case manager, so some of the research we've, done, we've been doing is in um, more proactive community mental health services where there's an assertive outreach type model where, where they might have a case manager that takes them to their appointments, visits them fairly regularly in their home and, and supports them in a day-to-day -day, uh, basis. And what we tend to find is that often perhaps that case manager acts almost as like a buffer to some of the stigma or the discrimination that they would usually, that, that person might usually experience if they didn't have that in that, you know, if they weren't in that care model, which is quite interesting. So that's where we've, we've seen, we've interviewed um, a range of case managers as well to get their experiences of what do they see in the way that their clients are treated. Mm. And that's what where do they see? Oh, some, some pretty concerning things really. Um, okay. So if the, the case managers that we've talked to report that their clients are, you know, uh, discriminated against really on a daily basis in many aspects wow. of their lives. So they report on examples of um, healthcare in particular, because that's often what they're often the ones taking them to appointments. Um, things like taking them to a GP surgery and the receptionist in that general practitioner general practice surgery has asked them to told them to wait outside because you know they smell they might disrupt the other the oh, other dear. people in the waiting room or um pretty disturbing example was when a case manager took a their client to the dentist um and once kind of you know looking at the the patient's history realized their medications and tried to say oh no no i can't i can't treat this person and, and it was only when that case manager really pushed and said why you know we're here he needs your care um the dentist said oh well you know once he gets in the chair who knows what might happen oh dear yeah and that was that was in That's sydney beautiful. um mm. in a private practice in a dental surgery only in the last couple of years so i find that that pretty concerning so they're the type of things that the um, case managers are seeing um 
and it's preventing people from getting the care that they need outside that, of their yeah. health support, right? Yeah, that's right. So I think if this client group didn't have such proactive uh, case managers, and, and admittedly, this is one area of Sydney that we, we've looked at this, so I know this team are pr particularly proactive, so I don't know quite what um, the services are like across Australia and other and in New Zealand, for example, but um, I, it, was, it was kind of quite concerning that I felt like if, if they didn't have this support, um, their physical health care would be even worse and their mental that's health right. care. Yep. Um, so that, that's pretty concerning. They, and I guess that's where they can fall through the cracks? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. And I think that's, that's part of the issue. So um, I think as pharmacists, I think we can contribute a lot, hopefully, in improving some of the physical health care issues for people with severe mental illness because mm -hmm. it is really complex and the reasons why they might have poor mental uh, poor physical health, you know, can be due to the side effect of the medications, the fact that they smoke a lot, a lot of those kind of factors. But also, as you say, often it's that they fall through the cracks. So, you know, is there, are they getting screened and treated for diabetes early enough so that mm. they don't have all those long-term complications? Are they, um, you know, another example I remember for, through a, a client that I had worked with was that sadly um, he had stage four melanoma, which he'd had a lump on his arm that, um, you know, if it was you or I, we would have noticed that, you know, mole when it first came up and gone and got it checked and it probably would have got it cut out and it was fine. But mm. because perhaps because of some of the cognitive impacts of his illness over time, you know, he wasn't able to recognise that and mm. no one picked it up. And by the time it got picked up, it was stage four melanoma and, and it had a bad outcome, you know. So I think it's really complex and I think... Um, we as pharmacists as well as other health professionals really need to be advocating to try and help make sure that they're not slipping through the cracks mm. and that they are getting those uh, checkups and mm. screening and all those type of things. Still having the support that they need, even yeah. though not everyone would have the, the same degree of proactive support of exactly. the workers that you have there in Sydney. Yeah, that's right. That's right. There is some other studies and, and research that says that Health professionals can also be agents of stigma, with some studies suggesting that health professionals to be one of the most stigmatizing groups. Mm. And this was something else I read that surprised me. Yeah. Uh, but can you tell me a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, so a lot of the research on health professionals stigma, um, there's not as there's not as much research around how um, people are treated when they go to see a health professional, but rather there's quite a lot of kind of cross-sectional data that has surveyed a lot of health professional groups and looked at their levels of stigma, their knowledge around mental illness, and often has compared that to uh, general public, for example. Um, and generally, you know, there is some mixed um, research in that some, some studies have shown that some health professionals might um, have fairly favourable attitudes towards mental illness. But there are a number of studies that show that that's not always the case. And I think part of that comes back to if we think that um, while health professionals are generally more knowledgeable about mental illness, what the research tends to show that just because you have more knowledge about the illness doesn't necessarily mean that that translate to be, translates to better attitudes. So this also comes back to um, what we know around the evidence around what works to reduce stigma. 
Um, and it's not just about education. Education is one aspect. So that can help in some ways, but really it's about looking at other ways to try and improve behaviour and not just education on its own. So the evidence team tends to suggest that um, contact with people with a lived experience of mental illness um, is probably the most effective uh, way to reduce stigma, but it's not. It's also about the conditions of that contact. So, so what I mean by that is, because a um, health professional might have contact with patients all the time with a mental illness, but often that's not in the right kind of setting. So, say it's for example in a in a hospital setting where there's a hierarchical nature to that relationship. So the patient's unwell, and the health professional is the one saying what what to do. For example. But the evidence seems to be that if you have, um, uh, you know, an equal kind of status and it's an informal situation um, and it's, you know, a credible kind of example, that you'll have um, better improvements in terms of attitudes towards mental illness. So that's what um, some of our research is focused on around um, working with consumers with a lived experience of mental illness in our um, educational programs. Um, so we, as part of our curriculum here at, at Sydney University, um, we run regular sessions every year for our students. Um, and we work with a um, not-for-profit mental health organisation called One Door Mental Health here in New South Wales. Right. And they have, um, they train and support people uh, with a lived experience of mental illness to, to share their stories about what it's like to live with an illness live with a mental illness um, and they come and work in small groups with our students and, and discuss what it's really like to seek health care, to what it was like when they first got diagnosed, um, what it's like to take medications for, you know, a psychotic illness or what is it, what it's like to have suicidal thoughts and be in that kind of crisis state. So um, that type of thing, that authentic uh, contact with, with people seems to be what really does have good um, evidence for reducing stigma. So that's where it becomes a bit tricky about health professionals is that they don't always, I guess, have the right um, type of contact in their workplace setting. Um, and while they might be quite knowledgeable, it doesn't always translate to um, is, attitude change. Which is unfortunate, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I guess it, it just as educators, I think it's just we should reflect on that around how we um, how we develop the right skills in our students and and mm. give those, them those experiences kind of early on to put that together with the the knowledge that they need to be a health professional um, and right. then combine that I think so that they go out into the workplace with, with that at the start hopefully. Yeah yeah so very early in their careers. Yeah mm. yeah and that's what we're trying to do. Tune in to our next episode of CollegeCast where we continue our discussion on stigma and discrimination in mental health with Claire O'Reilly. CollegeCast is brought to you by Sharina Vassan from the College Education and Training Business Unit of the Pharmaceutical Society of New Zealand. All views of our guests in these episodes are their own.